The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events happening throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And although our podcast episodes frequently draw upon these classes and events for our content, this week we have a very special episode that we recorded just for the podcast, as I am once again joined by members of the Met Opera Guild education staff, to discuss the end of what has been a wonderful 2015-2016 opera season. Today we'll be reminiscing on our favourite opera moments of the season and talking about why certain moments stood out as being particularly remarkable for each of us. So without any further delay, I'm happy to introduce Stuart Holt, Director of School Programs and Community Engagement. Hi everybody. And Kyle Homewood, who is the Community Engagement Administrative Coordinator, as well as my co-producer of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Hello. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been a really fantastic season. It's hard to believe that it's already over. And to give everyone a bit of a recap in a nutshell of what we've seen on stage this season, we had six new productions, Otello, Lulu, Pearl Fishers, Manon Lescaut, Roberto Devereux, and Electra. And 18 repertory productions with a heavy dose of Italian opera. We had the Donizetti Tudor Queen trilogy, lots of Verdi, and a few Verismo with Cav Peg and Tosca, as well as some warhorse favorites like Il Trovatore, Turandot, and Barber of Seville. We had a few German works. Everyone loved seeing Tannhäuser back on the stage. And Lulu and Electra really did well, I think, as a dynamite 20th century package of hits. So we had quite an array on the stage. And so we thought to start off talking about or reminiscing about this season, we would kind of go around the table and talk about our best nights at the opera this season. So of everything you saw, what were some of the most stunning singing that you heard, some of the most stunning productions, the best nights that you can think of as you think back over the season. So why don't we start over on my right with Stuart? Well, I think that it has been such an exciting singing season. I think there's been some really thrilling nights in the opera. Um, I guess uh, to sort of start towards the end of the season, opening night of Elektra with Nina Stemme was just, it was fantastic. Mm. The orchestra was like a luxury sports car with this wave of sound being driven over you in the house. And her voice cuts through like a laser beam. And you just get this amazing storytelling through this grotesque story that uh, Strauss brings to life. Um, And I just, I loved it. It was thrilling. Um, I think also you mentioned Lulu. Watching Marlis Peterson go through the paces of that character and basically not leave the stage the entire evening was like watching a marathon distance runner. I mean, she 
I mean, to use a word, she was a beast. I mean, it was just <laughs> this amazing singing that we saw. And that was actually announced that this was her last Lulu ever. So yes. those of us who saw her this season really got to see a piece of history, I think, with this last performance of that role for her. Yeah, and I think after seeing it, I can understand why she decided that she wanted to step away from it. It is not only a big sing, but it is a physical... Uh, run on the body and on the voice. So uh, again, yeah, part being part of right. history was so exciting. And I think emotionally taxing. Yes. That must be an emotionally mm -hmm. taxing role to do again and again because that character goes through so much. So I can see that also being part of this um, decision to kind of cap that off and then move on to other things because you invest so much in it for so long, yeah. at some point you have to move on. It's true. Yeah. Well, and she's been doing that role for such a long time. Yes. Um, yeah. She probably feels like she's put a lot into it and is ready to put a bow on it. Exactly. And, and move on to something else. But a great performance. I, too, I just wanted, I feel like we shouldn't brush over Electra too fast because that is really, it's, it seems unanimously that everybody is thrilled mm -hmm. uh, with that mm -hmm. production and the performance. It's well sung, well played, and well performed. There's really no weak link when you look at the production, the performers. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, the final product production of Patrice Chereau and the, yes. the chance to be able to see that work come to the Met stage, I think, filled audiences with a sense of perhaps sadness uh, in knowing that Chereau didn't get to see that work come to life, but also a celebration that even though he's passed on, we're able to see his assistant bring that production to us and be able to experience it. So really a, a thrilling evening, I think, all around. And I think this production is an example of, you know, we, we see a lot of new productions where things are coming back to basics. You know, this wouldn't be mm -hmm. called a luxurious Met Opera set of the past. Uh, it's very basic, you know. Mm -hmm. It's stark, which goes along with the storytelling sure. of the opera. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, it's one act. It's all there for you to see pretty much the whole time. Yeah. So it's an example of how that can be very well done. Yeah. And there, yes. in my opinion, there was nothing lacking there. No. I thought it really allowed the storytelling and the singing to come alive for us. You know, sometimes right. stripping it back to that sort of austere setting allows us to focus in on a different component. And I think that it really allowed you know, all of those singers to bring something to the table that we see in most opera performances, but it was enhanced because we didn't have these grandiose trappings all around us, mm -hmm. um, which and I it, really appreciated. It highlighted Nina Stemma's performance yeah. because she was able to do, you know, she was the focus mm -hmm. and she was able to do so much, which she did. Yeah. And I think the score for that opera is so complex that mm -hmm. by not being distracted visually in a way, it can really focus your ears in a way that perhaps you might not otherwise do because there's lots of light motifs in the score. As you mentioned, the orchestra is huge. There's so much sound coming at you. Mm -hmm. So I think that the score itself is full of storytelling. And so it allows you a kind of starker set focuses the kind of sonic element of the opera, which is such a big part of that particular work. Mm -hmm. I was happy to be situated when I was uh, at the house watching in a place where I can really look into the orchestra pit mm. and watch everything that's going ah. on. And seeing such a big, you know, ensemble, 
um, collected in the pit. It is really something special. Yes. Um, and so I was happy to have that, that vantage point. It's one huge orchestra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Although there was a, a, a bit of a scare, I think only for us over-concerned audience members, <laughs> because actually at the start of the opera, the, it's the sweeping Mm-hmm. is the start. So I don't yes. know if, if this is continuous throughout and, and on opening night when you were there this happened, but actually when the lights came up on the stage, there was no conductor on yes. the podium. Yeah. And so it's this weird moment where you know you get so used to clapping as the conductor comes out. Yeah. And this time it goes right into the action and the um, the score starts with the sweeping of a broom, mm-hmm. which is another great way of breaking the tradition that we're used mm. to when going to the opera house and forces you to focus in on what's happening on the stage. It's all very intentional. Yeah, and I think the audience on opening night was very shocked because all of a sudden the lights went black immediately mm-hmm. in the house and it was pitch black and you did hear a sort of collective gasp from the audience mm. as it went dark so quickly and then the black drape went up and then you saw and you then heard that sweeping sound. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was a very uh, interesting start to the production and puts you in a very different place than, as you said, that tradition of the conductor coming out, the spotlight coming on, you know, the audience Mm -hmm. applauding, turning around and bowing, and then starting the opera. We were in a very different mindset from the onset of this production, which I personally really loved. I thought that was a great experience. Mm -hmm. I think it really speaks to how opera, your night at the opera can be one full encompassing experience. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily, it doesn't always have to be something where you're kind of passively observing. You're kind of enveloped in the action and within the the vision that the director had for that particular production. Yeah. Well, I I didn't mean to stop you, Stuart, on your tellings of your favorite nights. We've digressed. Opera. Yes, we have. Uh, as I'm glad that we did. Yeah, yeah I'm glad that we did too. Uh, so I think my final most memorable night of the season was opening night of Il Trovatore. A uh, very exciting uh, night for all of us in the house. Anna Netrebko doing her first Leonora at the Met. But the Big talk was the return of Dmitry Horostovsky mm-hmm. after his um, dealing with uh, his cancer issue uh, and his triumphant return to the stage. And I have to say, when he made his first entrance, you know, there was this hearkening back to the olden glory days of applauding when the, you know, diva enters or when the leading man enters. And in this case, it's the baritone and a bad guy, but there was such an outpouring of love from that audience. We were thrilled to see Dimitri back on stage, and then he opened his mouth to sing, and it was just this luxurious, glorious tone, and it it was just really beautiful. The end of the opera, of course, we all know that there was a big applause from the audience, and then the orchestra threw white roses onto the stage, and really Aww. just a, a a moving moment. Anna was uh, visibly moved uh, by that moment. She was crying, and yeah, just amazing singing, and just this outpouring of love from the audience that they wanted them to succeed. They wanted them to have a triumphant night, and I think that that came across both that night and the you know further performances that they were in. I think that's a very critical point that you just mentioned because as an opera audience we are often critical um Mm -hmm. not because we want obviously we want to have a 
highly successful performance, we want to be blown away. But uh, an opera, an operatic audience is a discerning audience. Mm-hmm. Um, They're an invested audience. Yes, yes. yes. And so yeah. it's nice uh, to be in this situation and to hear everybody talk about um, these performances where everybody was just so behind Dmitry Vorostovsky. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it's one of those times where you know, we all step outside of just the performance on stage. Right. And it also allows everybody to engage themselves emotionally into the performance in a different way as well. Exactly. Um, For I sure. mean, as you said, he's the, the bad guy, but it's still, <laughs> it, it takes, it adds that extra dimension to going and seeing the performance. Yeah, and I think it also humanizes these singers. You know, we see them on stage and we see them playing characters, but... They're real people that struggle with real challenges. And the idea that this community of opera goers rallies behind an artist that they have loved and supported and that they've enjoyed so many of their performances can then give back to them in a way of support and strength in a challenging time is really, uh, it's, it's something exciting about our community of opera goers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, shall I share? Yeah, some please, of yes, share, please. tell us. My highlights. Well, I think it's fitting just to throw out, I think a highlight that was a highlight for all three of us, as mm-hmm. well as many other people, the Pearl Fishers. Oh, yeah. Coming Definitely. to the Met for the first time in 100 years. And the cast that was assembled for that was really so spectacular. Mm-hmm. That has to be my favorite night at the opera for a lot of different reasons. The singing was beautiful. I enjoyed what was done with the production. I thought it was visually stunning. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, from the literal pearl fishers diving down, it was such a great effect. Um, For anybody that hasn't seen it, uh, how would you describe um, sort of people in harnesses behind a scrim? To make it look like they're diving into the depths of the ocean ocean to go diving for these pearls. And so... I was watching a, a documentary uh, video clip about how they did that, the aerial company, an oh, aerial artist that did it, and they talked a lot about how they really had to train a lot in order to descend on a downward angle because they're so used to doing aerial things where they start by lowering themselves kind of feet first yeah. from the top of the stage downward, right? But then to have to go as if you're diving into water, so hands and head first, mm-hmm. and then to move your body in such a way that it looks like you're pushing against water and getting resistance against water was something they really had to work at choreographing so that it looked convincing. And I thought it was a thousand percent convincing. You really believed oh, yeah. you were looking into the ocean at these yeah. divers. Where so. did you see that video, just in case anybody wants to... I believe it's on Met On Demand. There is a little bit about, um, in one of the special features in an HD broadcast, they talked about and interviewed these aerialists, and they described the process. So it's somewhere in the special features. Mm. Um, and so it's really interesting to hear them describe the whole learning process and bringing it to life and the challenges they faced and kind of training their bodies to do that. Mm-hmm. I think I remember us having a conversation after seeing the production and saying the only complaint was that they didn't have that effect inserted more often. Yes. <laughs> because it was so great. You know, Because we liked it so much. We oh, wanted yeah. it to happen more. Exactly. Yeah. That was really special. And I, I, we can't skip over the famous Pearl Fisher's duet 
for so many people, that was the only bit of music from this opera that we knew beforehand mm -hmm. going in. And to have Matthew Polansani and Mariusz Kvitschen oh. singing this duet, I think what made it so special for me is in the moment, I remember thinking, I don't know if you'll ever hear more beautiful music being sung by more beautiful voices, yeah. uh, period. Yes. You know, I would be hard-pressed to find. I know everybody has their own taste in voice, but for me, I feel like, you know, hopefully I have many years to live, and I don't know <laughs> if anything will beat that. And I thought, too, that seeing it and hearing it within the context of the story, because you know, we, we all know this duet. Everyone's heard it at least once, but you don't really know what they're singing about. You don't really have context for it. And so to hear those glorious voices and then to have that emotional connection to what's happening on top of that really kind of compounded the effect of it, at least yeah. for me, I think, Definitely. in seeing it within context. I think context. it takes on that additional layer that we always like to have, that it's not just this piece from an opera, but it's in the context of the work, there's a visual context for us, there's a relationship between these characters mm -hmm. beyond just two singers singing a duet. So it just it enhances that whole entire experience for us yes. as an audience member. <laughs> I was going to say, should we take a listen to some of it now? So, as Naomi has now reminded us um, off microphone, but wanted to, we wanted to insert this in because it's worth noting, she said, um, well, why don't you? So, you will probably never have an opportunity like this again to hear such beautiful music sung by such beautiful voices by such good-looking singers. That so, is true. Kavichin and Polanzani yeah. are gorgeous, just saying. That was, <laughs> that was an, another moment uh, within the opera in which I think everybody had a collective um, gasp was when Marius Kavichin tears off his shirt after the big tidal wave Oh, comes. yes, after the and, tsunami and he's all wet. Yes, and no, <laughs> nobody was expecting it, and uh, he's... But most of us were happy it happened. Yes, he's Well, and I think he even was surprised. I mean, he said in interviews before the production that in his 20s, nobody asked him to take his shirt off, and now that he's in his 40s, everybody is asking him to do it. So I guess there's something to be said well, for they'd, that. They'd yeah. be fools not to. <laughs> um, we should also, we haven't made mention of Miss Deanna Damrau. Yes. And she was spectacular. Mm -hmm. So she, and she also looked beautiful in the costuming oh, that they designed yes. for her. It was really stunning. And, of course, her voice was even more stunning. Her singing was impeccable in this mm -hmm. particular opera. 
Yeah. And I have to say that, you know, she really was a champion for this piece. She did it overseas and, you know, when talking, I think, with the artistic team and Mr. Gelb at the Met about what could possibly be next for her. This was one of the projects that she said she wanted to do. So uh, I think all of us who loved Pearl Fishers are sort of indebted to uh, Deanna Damrau for being a champion for this piece and sort of helping to uh, perhaps uh, pave the way for its return to the Met, which is always exciting. Well, I yes. suppose then I should be writing her a letter or, <laughs> or, <laughs> a letter of or something. Yes, yeah. she was really fantastic. And I wanted, on the subject of her costuming and in mm -hmm. the entire look, I think she did a good job of embodying the character and the costume. You mm -hmm. know, it's not a typical dress that one wears on an operatic stage. That's true. And she, in my opinion, really pulled it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really beautifully. Yes. And, and moving on to others of my favorite moments mm -hmm. of the season, um, I want to jump back to the very beginning of the season um, and talk a little bit about the new production of Otello, yes. which yes. I enjoyed very much. Um, I had spoke to people on both sides of the fence. It seems like everybody that I spoke to either wasn't thrilled about the production, largely because the previous production was so well-known as mm -hmm. being very elaborate and beautiful. Very lavish. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Um, however, I, d I also spoke to a lot of people that really loved this new production by Bartlett Scherer, um, and I'm one of those people uh, for a few different reasons, but I love the general concept. Mm -hmm. I think this opera is one where musically, to me, at times... It can be a little bit static, yes. Um, where there's a lot of you know standing and singing to me. Right. <laughs> Naomi's. I'm making a face. Get, yeah, I, she's it's one of my eyes. favorites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think with that's fair. That's first fair. of all, with the inclusion of the waves being projected in the background, in addition mm -hmm. to just being a cool effect, I think adds to um, the motion of what's going on because this is a plot where things are continuously churning, mm -hmm. you know? It's not, the plot is moving. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, the waves in the background, to me, symbolized this this churning of the plot and action moving mm -hmm. forward. And there's also a lot of moments in Otello where a character is, like, eavesdropping or just mm -hmm. getting little snippets of something else that they're actually not supposed to be privy to, right? And so I think that the kind of kind of half-opaque, half-clouded nature of the walls amplified that kind of effect that the character is getting part of a conversation but not all of it that they're overhearing, and therefore it leads to all of this terrible misunderstanding and, you know, the wrong impression about people, and that plays into the, the turning of the jealousy, the constant growth of Otello's jealousy throughout the opera. Exactly. So I think the, the, that those moving walls, I also really liked them because of the symbolic element that it played into with the story itself. Exactly. And I think, for me, the exciting thing about Otello was is that I worked the opening night simulcast in Times Square. Well, that's right, you were on, the, on Times Square uh, with all the chairs, and they were on the big screens there. Yeah, and I have to say that there was something thrilling about hearing the opening storm sequence on all of these screens in Times Square on a 
huge sound system. I mean, there is something really exciting about being in the opera house, but it was loud. <laughs> I mean, it was opera in your face. Nice. And I think that it was something very visceral about that experience, and you saw the waves and the storm and these clear walls and the Met Opera chorus and the orchestra just surging away amongst all of this cacophony of Times Square. Mm -hmm. Horns, people, uh, you know, flashing lights, but somehow it cuts through everything. And I just think there's something so exciting about the way that that opera starts that it was an extremely exciting way to start the season, yeah. I think. And it, it stopped traffic. I was there as well. Yeah. And, I mean, not literally the cars, but I, I think anybody that's been to Times Square and sees the foot traffic going on in that area, it was amazing to see and hear this opera and then see all of these random people going about whatever they're doing in Times Square, turn their heads and tune into this introduction to Otello. It was really a, a cool thing to see. I was going to say, it would be really interesting, and if, if I was a tourist or kind of an unsuspecting pedestrian walking through, that that opening crash of lightning and thunder and that storm sequence would definitely stop me in my tracks if it just all of a sudden <laughs> came out of the, you know, out of the ethers of Times Square. So that must have been really neat to see. But unlike you two, I was actually in the house oh, on opening well. night. It was <laughs> it was my first time ever inside the opera house on opening night, which was really made the experience for me as well kind of extra special because it is one of my favorite operas and just the energy of opening night in the house is just off the charts. It's really insane. And mm -hmm. so seeing, and then, you know, kind of seeing all of the funders and donors and patrons and, and kind of, um, the, the celebrities. celebrities and, mm -hmm. you know, elite, uh, opera goers of New York city coming in their beautiful gowns and you can kind of do some stargazing while you're there. And so I went nice and early so that I could kind of soak up the whole red carpet experience from the sidelines. And then to see all of those people in the house and the house just full to the gills, you know, and then to have this fantastic musical experience, a different type of exciting to be in the house than Times Square, but both, I'm sure, equally as interesting in their own ways. Yeah. Definitely. Well, for my final uh, most memorable <laughs> We're going in threes, my final most memorable night at oh, wait. the opera. Before you do that, we should listen. Well, I think we should. You know what? We should listen okay. to this opening storm sequence. And as you're listening, everyone, just imagine that you're walking through Times Square and this comes blaring on to the sound system in Times Square. Or in Naomi's case, sitting in the Metropolitan Opera House <laughs> on opening night.
Why don't you tell us your last uh, thought for your favorite moments? Yes, this so in in a certain way, taking a 180 degree turn from some of the things that I've said thus far, mm-hmm. uh, my final most memorable night at the opera this season was for another Verdi opera, Simon Bocanegra, mm. and oh. many of the reasons that I enjoyed this particular uh, opera and performance are contradictory to what I've said about talking about these new productions and adding a new dynamic. I loved this traditional, uh, beautiful production of Simon Bocanegra. It's a real I sense mean, of pageantry. Yes, and you really feel like you are put into Italy. You know, is it? it's uh, Genoa, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes, and you really feel, I mean, um, the second scene when it opens up and you're outside of this villa and you see the gardens and the sky in the distance it it is a testament to just what can be done at the Mm. metropolitan opera house Uh, it was so special to be able to see that visually and then on top of that the singing was phenomenal this cast i i think this really was a bit of a sleeper on the season um you know you didn't hear too many people talking about it Mm -hmm. but when you have um Kaleja, uh, as your leading tenor, you have uh, Ferruccio Fellanetto singing Placido Domingo, 
Um, it really provided for this powerhouse scenario. And you do hear people talk about, well, Placido isn't a baritone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's singing this yes. baritone role. And I can agree with that to a certain point, but it's still Placido Domingo. Right. And yes. he still brings <laughs> such a special quality. Um, I, I think if you can wrap your head around, okay, I'm not listening to a traditional baritone singing this, mm-hmm. and you just acknowledge that, then it's it's still a wonderful performance. He adds a lot of drama and passion to the role. Um, there was a huge gasp um, at the end of the opera. I hope any, nobody's worried about spoil, spoiler alerts, but <laughs> when Simon Bocanegra, uh, Placido Domingo, has his death scene at the very end, there was a gasp when, you know, when he fell to the ground and died. Ooh. It was very dramatic, um, and he still sounds great. Uh, the other two gentlemen that I mentioned were phenomenal. It just really mm-hmm. was fantastic. And holding her own in this cast, I, we've joked about this because I will pronounce her name wrong, um, but Miss Harut, Harutunian, Harutunian, and it's... Um, Liana is her first name? Yes, Liana Harutunian. I'm very sorry, Liana, uh, that I've butchered your name and to everybody else out there that knows the real pronunciation. <laughs> but in any case, she really held her own as being, a, at least to me, a relatively unknown name. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen her before. She really um, just stormed through mm-hmm. and uh, was this powerhouse of a voice that matched up with these other big voices on stage. So all in all, it was a wonderful night. I found myself fully engaged and enjoying every moment start to finish. Did you have any favorite moments musically? So yes, as far as musical moments go, for me it was the the big tenor aria for... Uh, Adorno, uh, where Kaleha, that was to me where he shined the most. He does well singing in the ensemble, fantastically well, but it was one of those times, I don't know if you um, have experienced this in the opera house, where you're seeing everything and you're taking everything in and moving along with the storyline, but all of a sudden you're almost taken out of the moment and the thought crosses your mind and you think, wow, this singing is phenomenal. This singer is a very special talent, mm. and uh, I'm really being treated to something special right now, and that's the feeling that I had. So, All right, well, let's listen to a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Spegnere potesse un colpo il mio furor 
Are you are you done with your favorites, or could you go on and on? You know, I could add a few more in there. I, <laughs> I think we all could. Yeah, yeah. Being honest. But but please, Naomi, tell us tell us about your favorites. All right. Well, well, you have already touched on a couple of them. Um, Pearl Fishers. I loved Pearl Fishers. That is a night at the opera. I will never forget. We talked about Otello, and something that we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about Otello. I, so everyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge fan of Maestro Yannick, Nizette Seguin. Oh, yeah. And so, but I thought that his leadership of the orchestra in Otello, like the orchestra just really came to life under his direction. And I thought that the orchestra itself in that opera 
is a character and you really felt that when you were in Otello and there were all kinds of things that I was listening for that I felt like even though I've listened to this opera hundreds of times I heard things I'd never heard before mm-hmm. you know just little solo lines or kind of con- contrapuntal moments or pairings of certain instruments that really struck me when I was listening and I think part of that is because what he was able to bring out of the orchestra in that particular performance so that's an element of Otello that really made it special for me. You know, I hope you don't mind me interjecting. No, I um, don't. Another thing I meant to mention about Otello was the performance by Jelko Lucic. Mm. Yes. Was so good as Iago. He was an evil Iago. Yes, which is, is kind of funny because we've had him here uh, doing a singer studio interview with Opera News, mm-hmm. and he was, was so nice. He was, <laughs> is the kindest yes. person in real life, yeah. but he just really oh, he was nasty. Yeah, um, yes. and then combining that with adding that kind of vocal quality to it that that really enriched this evil side of himself. It was yes. it was special. I just I didn't want to pass over that. I was reminded of it. Definitely and. The Desdemona, it was Sonia Yoncheva, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. so when she came out in that red dress, oh, yeah. the whole audience just, you know, there was this kind of murmur because everyone was so blown away with just how beautiful she looked and sounded and moved. She really, I think, embodied the, the innocence of Desdemona that everyone falls in love with. And I thought her last scene, her, the death scene at the end, I mean, everyone was in tears around you, you know? And so you really felt like she was embodying the character as well as singing it beautifully. Yes. But aside from Otello and Pearl Fishers, I have to say that the night that stands out for me the most this season was when I went to see Lenazze di Figaro. And I know that Mozart is my favorite, aside from Otello. Figaro is, you know, one of my favorite operas of all time. And so because I've seen this opera so often, I think it says something that this particular performance stood out above every other one that I've ever seen. And I think part of it was that the cast was so well balanced from start to finish. And it's a big cast. And so it's difficult to find singers that pair well with each other and balance each other sound-wise. And any Mozart opera at the Met, the orchestra is going to feel a little bit smaller because just the number of instruments that are playing are significantly less than an Electra or an Aida. And so sometimes the complaint about Mozart at the Met is that the house is too big for that small of an orchestra. But I felt like the balance between singers and orchestra was perfect. You never felt like the orchestra was too small. You never felt like one singer was singing louder or out of balance with another. I was not sure how I would feel about Mikhail Petrenko singing uh, Figaro because the last time I saw him on stage, he was singing Bluebeard. And Bluebeard is such a sinister, frightening role. And Figaro is a character that you kind of have to fall in love with. And so I wasn't sure how I would feel about him. But from the first moment I was... I was taken in. I believed it. He was fantastic. Anita Hartig was an amazing Susanna. Mm-hmm. I saw um, Rachel Willis Sorensen was the countess, and she sang beautifully. And my favorite, Luca Pizzaroni, was countess or was Count Almaviva. And uh, he was another one that I'd never seen him in that role. And I'm so used to seeing him sing, you know, Leporello and Don mm-hmm. Giovanni that I wasn't sure if 
I would buy into the kind of sliminess of yeah. the Count with him playing it. But he definitely convinced me, and he really brought his own persona to the role, but it really worked. It really did work. And so I felt like the whole cast was just stellar. And well, big shout out to Kyle's big crush, I Isabel was Leonard. Say, I was going to say, Naomi, <laughs> don't think that you can talk about this cast <laughs> and not make mention of Isabel Leonard. She, for me, she is the best Carabino yeah. I've ever seen in history. I mean, yeah. Frederica von Stade has this huge legacy of singing Carabino, but I never got to see her do it live on stage. And so mm. I feel like, for me, Isabel Leonard is my Frederica von Stade. Like, she yeah. is the Carabino of Carabinos. And so. I also have to say, with this new production, Isabel is pretty fearless because... In the scene where she has to jump out of the window, (laughs) she literally jumps out of the window and lands on a crash mat backstage. (laughs) So it's not like she just sort of crawls out the window and sort of crawls underneath the windowsill, but she literally jumps, which I think is so fun and exciting, and she's willing to take those physical chances as well as those musical chances. Yes. Yes, and she has such a special quality to her voice um, I agree with you. I, yeah. I think, I mean, she's the best I've certainly seen. And you almost have that worry that, oh, well, maybe Carabino's been ruined for me. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. In a way. Yes. Uh, where, but. you know, she's so good. I mean, hopefully we'll see her do it many more times. But it's, it, you wonder, will you see somebody do it that well? Yeah. Hopefully she just keeps singing it so I can keep experiencing right. Her Carabino. Exactly. And I think, too, that another thing I should mention is that even though this is one of my favorite operas, I'm not immune to feeling like, wow, this is getting long sometimes because (laughs) Figaro is a long opera. And so I felt like part of what made this night so memorable was that I really, not for one second, felt like anything was dragging. I never had the feeling that, you know, things were kind of slowing down or, like, you know, I'd never looked at my watch. I felt like... The pacing, and that must be to the credit of Fabio Luisi, the pacing of this particular performance was just so amazing that you never really felt like you wanted to get up at intermission or you weren't waiting for that intermission. It was the kind of feeling where the music was just all making sense to you and you were engrossed in it. And so, and I think that's a hard thing to do in an opera of this length. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that the orchestra and uh, the conductor and the singers were really gelling in a way that made it all just coalesce beautifully. So, and the production is really a fantastic production, mm-hmm. playing on that kind of nine, like or turn of the century uh, stylist, stylistic look kind of has a little hint of Downton Abbey, a little hint of, you know, Spain and Spanish architecture at this time. So I think that overall it's a, it was a really fantastic package, and I was happy to see it come back this season because it wasn't oh, new yeah. this season. This was its second time up on the stage since the, the new production came out. So that was my, my favorite. And so I think we should listen to something from this. And since we gushed so much about Isabel Leonard, we should listen to an excerpt of Carabino. Shall we go with Voyke Sapeste? I think so. It All seems right. appropriate. All right, here we go. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Okay, so there's a few more things we wanted to touch on. And so we've mentioned a few production elements from some of the new productions that we liked, but I know that for myself there was a couple uh, production elements from things that were not necessarily new productions that really struck me. So I thought we would kind of share some of our favorite visual elements of the season. For me, it was the first time I saw the Anthony Minghella production of Madama Butterfly. Oh, it's so beautiful. And to see that in person, it is just, it is glorious. It is a feast for the eyes. The colors are just amazing. And mm -hmm. again, it's not necessarily a, a lavish or cluttered production. There, it's certainly not minimalistic, but it doesn't, you know, kind of fill every corner of the stage with something. But yet... What is there is so striking in how it's designed and set up. So that was a kind of favorite first, uh, first look at that for me. I think that production is another example of a, a, a simple concept when it comes mm -hmm. down to it. You know, and as you said, not overly lavish, but a simple concept done really well mm -hmm. that hits a home run. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite visual moments in that production is during the love duet where you've got those um, petals that are on mm -hmm. the chain that are sort of falling from above. And they weave through them. Yeah. And then you have these puppeteers with the big lanterns that mm -hmm. are lit up that are then moving around on the stage and creating a sense of intimacy for Chocho-san and Pinkerton with this glorious Puccini score. It's just, uh, it's really breathtaking mm -hmm. to see that. And it's not... A huge extravagant thing. It's basically a black stage with these petals that are coming down and then these lit up Chinese lanterns that are being manipulated. Mm -hmm. But it's so glorious when you pair it with this score. I love that production. It's yeah. so beautiful. And the moment I remember when the when Cho Chozan and all of the the women that are surrounding her coming up to the wedding when they come over the hill. Yes. And then they use this mirror so that you can see a reflection of this line of women from above and they're all wearing these gorgeous kimonos and it was just you know such a simple thing putting a mirror at an angle above them that just added that extra element to what you were given visually mm -hmm. so that was i think a really fantastic visual feast for the eyes can mm -hmm. we think of some other ones well on a similar note this season was my first time seeing the celebrated Turandot production mm. live and in the house. And boy, talk about Feast for the Eyes. Yes. This is another one where we're going in the opposite direction. Yes. And it's done in a traditional way, but 
so well that really I, I can only be done at the Met, perhaps, you know. It's, yes. it's just so beautiful. There's so much going on. A cast of thousands on the stage. Mm-hmm. I think, didn't you say that you saw it twice? Stuart? I saw it twice right. this season. I wanted to see two different Turandos. So yeah. I saw Christine Gurka as the Turando, mm. which was thrilling, and another another chance for us to be in the house, and everybody was cheering for her. Everybody wanted to see what she was going to do with this role and make it her own. And then I went later in the season and saw it with Nina Stemma as the Turando. A very different sound, but again, both stunning performances, bringing different things to the role. And it's a challenge with that production because there is so much on that stage and it's so lavish the Turando has to find a way to stand out from all mm-hmm. of that lavishness and really put a vocal stamp on that character. Both ladies sort of swung for the outfield and hit home runs, so that was exciting to see them and the audience response, but it is such a beautiful production and so mm-hmm. lavish. It's one of those productions where all of a sudden where we are at the riddle scene and the curtain goes up and the set gets applause before oh, yeah. anybody yes. starts singing. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have a couple of those in the repertoire. That normally happens for that, Act 2 in Boheme. Yes. Normally the lead-in to the triumphal scene in Aida gets applause. Yes. So it's, it's grand opera, I guess, at its grandest, between yes. the number of people on stage and just the amount of scenery and costuming that happens. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes... As an opera audience, we, you know, we always want more. We want more, new, better, greater. And I think when you have a season like this season we've just had, one of the great takeaways is being able to see these war horses Mm -hmm. done so beautifully. Mm -hmm. Even though many people have seen them before, I don't think anyone would be upset about having an opportunity to see it again. Sure. It's the same reason why we all go to see Bohem every year. Right. Because it's beautiful, you know. So it's it's really a treat any time you get to see one of these productions. And so since you mentioned that the reason you went to see this twice was to hear two different women singing the role of Turandot, I think we should try and listen to a little clip of both Turandots that we had this season. So the first one we'll listen to is... Let's listen to Christine Gerke first. All right, and a little clip from Inquesta Regia. Of course. We'll listen to the same clip from both so that you can hear them side by side. And then our second singer is Lise Lindstrom? Uh, no. Nina Stemma. Nina, Nina Stemma, right. All right, so here we go. Inquesta Regia, two different singers that did extremely well this season. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so seeing as we're on the uh, talking about singers train now, why don't we kind of wrap things up by talking about some of our favorite singing this season that we haven't yet mentioned. So I know we have Sandra Radvanovsky really uh, had a historic season this year and with singing the three Donizetti Tudor Queens. So yes, she she has to take the cake or yes. the, the crown. <laughs> the crown as it the is. The triple yeah. crown yes. in this scenario. She was phenomenal in all three operas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was it's amazing to see somebody be able to stretch themselves like that and to produce such a high quality product mm-hmm. again and again and again. Yeah, and I think, you know, having seen Stuarda and Anna Bolena when they debuted mm-hmm. uh, with Joyce DiDonato and Anna Netrebko, it was exciting to see a through line of one single singer singing all three of the roles. So Stuarda, Anna Bolena, and then in uh, Roberto Devera. Uh, and I just think that there was something really thrilling of watching her bring different characteristics, both vocally and acting-wise, to all three of these ladies, and really making fantastic singing nights for us as the audience. And I think there was a supercharge at all three of the openings because everybody knew that they were going to be part of history. They were going to be able to say, I saw Sondra Rabinowski sing all three of the Tudor Queens during the 2015-2016 Met Opera season, which doesn't happen very often. And Mm -hmm. I think we all sort of feel like that is a bucket list checkoff of being able to see that. And uh, kudos to Sandra. I thought it was thrilling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she looked amazing. I mean, the transformation in Act in the third of the Tudor Queens, in Roberta Devereux, where she's Queen Elizabeth mm-hmm. I, was uncanny to all of those photographs we've seen. Mm-hmm. It was just, wow. And to yes. know what Sandra looks like normally, she's been here <laughs> at the Guild multiple times mm-hmm. to do interviews for us, and she has this glorious glamazon, and here she <laughs> is as this... Not really attractive, Queen Elizabeth I. No, her hairline's receding. I think that when I, whenever I see the photos of Sandra in that costume, I think, wow, they really got that, that receding hairline so right. Well, I guess we give kudos then to the, the costume wig and, yeah, shop costume, and makeup, wig and makeup shops yeah. at the house that really time and time again pull off these amazing feats. Yeah. I think also what's so great about this, in addition to being a bucket list thing for all of us, <laughs> Uh, is that it provides an added sense of continuity between these three different stories. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. There's different things that connect in different ways. For instance, the mad scenes mm. that we have yes. Yes. in each of them, they draw comparisons between these three different queens, if you will. And it's one of those things that when you see it with different singers, you, you'd make that connection, but when it's the same person, it adds an extra mm-hmm. special something. And especially, I mean, they're all Donizetti, they're all composed by the same person, but each character that she was embodying was certainly a unique and defined Mm -hmm. character, and the music and the journey that they go on musically is individual and different in each opera. So you have that kind of, there's connection, but there's also individuality within that, so it's a kind of nice package, I think. And I also felt like, by listening to the same singer 
sing it, I got a greater sense of the compositional journey that Donizetti was on with these three different pieces, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sort of exploring different things with the vocal writing by hearing the same person do all three. I I paid more attention to that. I think that when I had before, when I heard two different people singing those roles, great singing and great performances, but my ear was listening for something else when I was hearing the same person. Definitely. Well, and talking about great singers, I think another situation where it's just a powerhouse cast is in the, this new production of Roberto Devereaux mm-hmm. that we got mm-hmm. to see, where you not only have Sandra delivering an amazing performance, but then everybody else that's rounded out that cast, Alina Garancha, was oh, amazing. Yes. yes. And then when you have that duo once more of Matthew Polansani and Mariusz Kavitschin, it's just, you're not left wanting for anything. Right. Mm-hmm. I do have to admit, as sad as I am about it, the night that I was in attendance for Roberto Devereaux was one where Matthew Polansani didn't sing. And Aww. it was sad for me. I mean, the performance was still phenomenal. But it was sad for me because he's one of my favorites. Uh, he's one that just continuously makes everything seem so easy. Mm-hmm. It's You almost Definitely. don't even get as much of an appreciation for it as you should because you assume, oh, well, that, that must generally be easy because that's how he's making it appear. So, yeah, it was a special thing to see as a culmination to these three Tudor queens to have sure. such mm-hmm. an incredible cast. And really the casts for all three were very good, but to have that many superstars in powerhouses, yes. the, the level of the sound, it was so big for all of those singers in Roberto Devereaux. And I think that audience responded so well to that the opening night the ovations Mm -hmm. at the curtain call it was it was electric in the house which was really exciting and thrilling to see and I think Sandra was visibly moved by Mm -hmm. the overwhelming love and support that the audience was pouring onto her after Mm -hmm. compete and completing this you know triple crown, if you may, of these Donizetti operas. It is a triathlon (laughs) she was running. It is, very much so. Didn't she, even in one interview, I I feel like she said, you know, I I can't believe I agreed agreed to do this. Yeah. (laughs) But we're all glad that she did. That we are. really something Mm -hmm. special. All right. Well, I feel like we've touched on a lot of different things. I know that all of you listeners probably have your own favorites and things that you loved this season. And so we will uh, hopefully we've given you some things to possibly look up performances, things that were captured on HD or captured on radio broadcasts. So we all of us, I think, had a fantastic season. And I have to give a shout out to Kyle here, who I think is the only person I know who saw literally Every single opera on stage this season. Am I correct? You. I wish I could say you're wholly correct, but there were a couple that I I missed oh. for oh. unplanned reasons. Last season, I got <laughs> every single opera production and was very proud of that. This season, I missed I think two or three, but I consider myself lucky to see the ones that I did. That is know. still incredibly impressive yes. to have seen almost every single opera that I, went on stage. You know, that's that's 24 different productions. Well, so. as, 
being somebody that's not native to New York and growing up in a place where you don't have access mm-hmm. to this high quality of operatic performance on a regular basis, you know, I just I try not to take it for granted, and mm-hmm. I I see everything that I can see as much as I can. You know, it's so great that we have the live in HD. Yes. Um, and so people all around the world can see this quality uh, opera being mm-hmm. performed, but to be able to see it live. Uh, yes. is something special all of its own. And I also it's think true. that the, the student tickets at the Met, the student tickets and the rush tickets, mm-hmm. really make a big difference for those of us who really want to see, you know, 20 to 24 operas a yes. season. I mean, we couldn't do it otherwise. And right. so... Uh-huh. And yeah. 20 to 24 operas that you may want to see more than once. Yes. yes. So yes. there are those opportunities to experience it mm-hmm. multiple times and in many cases with multiple casts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's tickets to be had. It's not something that's, you know, yep. it's so hard to get your hands on. You can make it work. So yep. I do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's big a shout out to you for well, thank you. beating you win the race. <laughs> beat well, the rest of us. Speaking so. of another shout out, when you mentioned, you know, everybody in the audience likely has their own favorites from the Met season, we'll be posting this episode um, on our various social mm-hmm. media platforms. So Facebook, Twitter, what have you. Uh, and we'd love to hear about what everybody's favorite moments are. Definitely. So in the comments of, you know, when you see that posting, go and find us. It's the Metropolitan Opera Guild is what you'll search in, mm-hmm. in any of those platforms. And please tell us what your favorites are. We'd love to hear them. This is just three people's perception of yes. what was an amazing opera season. And that's that's why we love opera. We love talking about it. Obviously. <laughs> we, lo- we love hearing about it. So please, if you have favorite moments that you would like to share, please let us hear them. Yes, definitely. So with that, I will say thank you very much, all of our listeners, for tuning into episode 31 of the Met Opera Guild podcast. And thank you so much to Stuart and Kyle for joining me today and sharing and reminiscing about our favorite moments of the season. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the ones you've listened to, as Kyle mentioned, please leave us a review in iTunes. We love hearing from you. If you have uh, favorite moments, as we mentioned, or if there are topics that you are interested in and want to learn more about and want to see on future episodes, we love hearing what you want to know more about. And so speaking of future episodes, even though the opera season is over, we will continue our podcast every week throughout the summer so you can rely on us here at the Guild for your weekly dose of opera goodness. And we have some fun topics coming up. We look forward to exploring a wide array of interesting topics with you in the coming weeks. So until then, I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.